There are times where when you're walking through scripture, you just kind of I mean, this is the beauty of walking through the Bible is you always know where you're going to be next week. And the Lord always works it out in a way so that it kind of plays. Uh, you know, obviously, it, his word is active and living sharper than a double edged sword. It, it, God knows how to make his word apply. And there are times where when you start preparing for something like that, you know, you, it isn't like we stay up late on Saturday night trying to figure out what in the world we're going to share on a Sunday. You kind of know it's just it's in front of you. But as I was going through the text in Matthew 10, where we would be preparing for the first thing, of course, I always do when I start preparing for a text like this is I start looking at our context. I start looking at the text leading up to it to prepare me and I couldn't get past it. And I'll be honest, it's been a real, uh, real heavy week of of really letting and I'd ask God, please don't let me just intellectually ascribe to the text, but let me let me feel let me know it and uh, open my eyes to it. And, and that's really where we're at. So I, I'm asking you to do this. If you would, please open up your Bibles. If you don't have one, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. The uh, gals in the back will jaunter over to you, uh, however jauntering is, and they will get it. And then open it up to the last few verses of Matthew 9. And we'll, I mean, we'll kind of get the hint of 10 in this. We're starting again at 9.35. If I were to title this, and I only do this because I know that it winds up on the website that way. I might just use two words, and the two words are, therefore, pray. Matthew 9.35 says this. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power. This is chapter 10, verse 1, exousia. Over unclean spirits to cast them out. To heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And the name of the 12 apostles are these. Pray with me, would you please? Father, on this Communion Sunday, on this day of reckoning with you as we come to your table, we do this not by rite or ritual, but we do this by conscious choice, willingly. And you in your infinite brilliance know 
the needs represented in each one of us. You know the areas we are starving to hear a word for. And you know the areas we might be more deaf to hear your correction or exhortation. You have a blueprint for each of us. And I know that blueprint is to make us a sanctuary. And we thank you that, we, that you are the foreman and we are not. And there are times we do not understand how you build. Which is okay, because your ways are so far above our ways. We get that. We recognize our small human minds to be able to grasp the smallest bit of eternity is a supernatural act. And in the same way that one born and raised in the desert can only comprehend the ocean, we pray you open our eyes and our hearts and our minds, rip down walls, And bring healing today. Restoration today. Thriving today. Fruitfulness today. May we have so much fun in your word, but Lord, captivate us in it. Don't let us for a breath be distracted from everything you want to accomplish in each of us now. And I pray that you would redeem every second and just as you desire in length and in depth, make proper this time. Fruitful, impact eternity with it, I pray. So immerse me that you would be seen. Come upon me that you would use me. And in that, get me out of your way. Start a revolution in our hearts today, I pray. And if there be any who have yet to know you, let this be the day of their salvation, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. Jesus, if you remember, has just personally touched two daughters. One that was 12 that had died on it in route as Jesus was making a house call. And the second in route who lunged in faith to touch the hem of his garment. And as we get to this, these are kind of those segue texts. You know, that kind of text in between this and the next major event in Scripture. Like we see with chapter 10 as we see the sermon of the sending. And sometimes it's these moments that we kind of walk quickly through and then we look at the sequel or the next movie and we're at a loss. There's some character or some event that all so much is built upon and we don't even see it. And, and, and I'm looking at this for God to change me. And, and I, I'm, there's some things that I, I understand. I don't study to teach you. I study to learn and I study to be changed. 
I just share with you, as Paul would say, that which I first received, I give unto you. And, and I want to do that. I don't ever want to be like, well, this will preach. You know, I, I, what I want to do is be like, okay, I, you, you know, it's like you're a prep cook, you know, and you're cutting all this stuff up and then you're like, Lord, now make a recipe with it. And, and I, I don't want to just share with you anything that hasn't impacted me and expect it to impact you. And then I get to this text and I feel like I've gotten a snot beat out of me this week. And, and understand, and this is the way the Lord takes me into the, into the closet with it. In the prayer closet, it, it, he's, you know, and it's what Jesus did, what Jesus saw, what Jesus said, and, and then what he did was a result of it. Uh, first of all, what he did. In 935, it says he went through, and notice it says all, all cities and villages. Jesus didn't handpick the big cities. Jesus didn't sort of start out small and work his way up. If there was a place, he was going. Jesus was indiscriminate in regards to places to where he was uh, where he was going to do this. And he did three things we see here. The first of them, as we saw in this, is that he taught. And he taught in their synagogues, a place where we expect to be taught, instructed. Now, Jesus didn't teach in the markets because that was where the lost, more, for the most part, were uh, per capita. It was a place where people came and expected instruction and Jesus taught. A room like this, you come in and I assume you expect to be taught. And of course, James would say, hey, look at, you know, look at if you, if you are a teacher, do you are you first taught? And are you willing to sit at the feet of Jesus or are we just quick to, you know, to ignore the fact that he gave us two ears and one mouth in proportion? But he taught in their synagogues and then he preached. Now, nowhere in Scripture, of course, is preaching ever mentioned in a bad light. We say it that way because the world's told us to shut up and we've said, yes, sir. And, of course, the world's under the sway of the wicked one. First John made that clear. And we're trying not to step on toes. And then what the enemy does is keeps moving his toes. So we have no space left. We're like, well, I have a ministry. Do I preach? You better preach. Because the whole idea of it is you're sharing information, Russo, with the purpose of seeing somebody swayed by it. Why in the world would I give you information and not want you moved by it? Not want you changed by it? Not want you challenged by it? Not bring you to a place where some choice needs to be made? And we sneak in and sneak out and we call things awareness. And I'm not trying to pick on stuff like that, but we kind of just kind of go, here, here's something, expecting somehow for compassion to rise from it. But without Jesus, is there any compassion? There's hard to find compassion in the body of Christ, nonetheless, in the lost world. But what's interesting is, what do you think Jesus preached? He didn't preach, I died and rose again, because he hadn't yet. Does he preach the gospel, the good news of what? The kingdom. What good news was there of the kingdom as Jesus was speaking at this moment? That it was within your grasp. That there was a king and a constituency where you were cared for, not abandoned, not left alone. And this kingdom welcomes you. And you are welcome to be a part of it. Now, to be honest, this is a fairly easy place to say that. The reason we have struggled or been challenged, I should say, so much in the last couple years is because the EU has been very excited about the open doors of the United Kingdom. They see health care. They see welfare. Not that every person that comes from the EU is coming for that. I'd be 
being very mean to say that because many of you have come from the EU. But we're aware of the fact. When you see some of the places and the squalors where people live in, it's called normal. The slums of London are a paradise to some of the individuals for what they knew as normal before. But to say there is a place you could be cared for, where you wouldn't be a number, but a name. You would be personally invited by the king, who wouldn't just invite you into his kingdom, but would invite you into his home. That is good news. But he didn't just teach and he didn't just preach. He showed the fruit of that new kingdom and healing. If you're familiar with the story in the, in the Torah, in the Numbers, where the 12 spies were sent, Numbers 12 and, or 13 and 14, where they were sent into the promised land to spy out the land, and they were given really two objectives. There were two variables or two things that the people weren't sure of. One, God had promised this to be an amazing land of great fruitfulness. And the second was that God was going to go before them and fight in victory. There's no way you can prove the second. Not by going and spying out the land, but you can prove the first. And that already speaks a bit of the heart of the people already as they stand on the shores and stare across the Jordan at the promised land. And the spies go in. And they are surmising their opponents. They're weighing it out. How big of a challenge is this going to be? Could you imagine if the Lord laid before you and showed you every challenge that will be set before you between here and the destination he has for you? How many of us would be willing to get up this morning? If he showed us the people that would turn sour or the situations that would be challenging, the places where we find ourselves inardently weak. Could you imagine how threatening and burdening that would be. But instead, he shows us more of the destination. Because he knows it's the only thing we crave. The problem is, is that he's not going to show us much of the route because we wouldn't volunteer to go with him. And these guys are, if you will, appraising the route. And they say, these guys are like giants and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. They're not surmising the destination as much as they are the battle. But two guys come back with a great report and they bring the fruit. And as they bring the fruit, they're angered at the report of the other ten. Who seem to be more focusing on the challenges and the battles and the struggles than they do actually the, the benefit. Imagine if before every couple were to get married, all you explained to them were the battles they would face in marriage. It would be, as if you will, mountains to climb. But it's the benefits that drive us to marriage. It isn't like anybody in their right mind says, wouldn't it be great if I could commit my life to somebody that I will be challenged by? The Lord knows his end destination. And it's exactly or more than you would choose. But the route is required to get there. But when these men come back, they don't just say, stop looking at the giants. 
God's supposed to go before us. They bring fruit. And the fruit, in essence, was supposed to be the carrot in the donkey's face to move him forward. Can I just say that when Jesus was healing, and notice, by the way, he went to every or all cities and towns, villages, and he healed all sicknesses and all diseases. He was bringing a bit of the fruit of the promised land. Now, not the promised land here on earth, which would be, in essence, the place of walking in the spirit and a place of great fruitfulness, but the place where we ultimately stand before him and become like him because we see him as he is. And he shows us it is a place where there is no disease. It's a place where it's total healing. But that wasn't enough for him. Because he's looking here. Yeah, this may have been what Jesus did, but the issue that really got me was what Jesus saw. Verse 36 says, but when he saw the multitude. But he didn't just see the multitude. It said he was moved with compassion. He saw the multitude with eyes of compassion, with eyes of unmovable compassion, a compassion that does something. It doesn't just make you feel bad. It doesn't just power you with guilt. What it does is somehow when it lights a fire under your britches and makes you antsy, it makes you restless. It makes you uncomfortable, but not uncomfortable like you want to just go and drink a little bit to forget about it or stare at something for a while until you forget about it. It's something inside your soul that doesn't go away. And Jesus was moved when he looked at the masses. He looked with a compassion that moved them because they were two things. Because they were weary and because they were scattered. Like sheep without a shepherd, like a shepherdless sheep. So, what about you? What about me? We have the benefit, more than most places in the world, of seeing a multitude any, any moment we want to. All we need to do is take public transportation. All we need to do is go into the heart of the city. We don't even have to go into the heart of the city. There are more people... <clears throat> in Trafalgar Square sometimes, than the town I lived in, in California. And when I look at them, do I look at them with an eye of compassion that moves me? Or do I look at them selfishly? Well, I'm not even going to ask I'm just going to confess, I do look at them selfishly. I look at them as somebody who's going to take my seat on a train, as the person who's going to do something like make a mouth noise and irritate me. Someone that's going to have a body smell that's going to waft over my way. It's horrible how selfish I am. And I look at these people and I see the masses and I'm like, because that's what I'm trained to do here. But Jesus didn't look that way. What would Jesus do if he walked through Trafalgar Square? If he stood and waited for a train at Finsbury Park? If he walked down the street of Camden High? If he kind of burrowed his way through the stalls, the markets? Do you think you'd be like, ugh, that person got in front of me? 
The word for compassion is splognos. It's not a pretty word. I don't think it should be. It literally means that you have soft bowels or soft insides. Do you remember that moment when you saw that starving, the picture of that starving child or that video of the whatever the suffering thing was and your insides hurt? I mean, there was something inside of you you could physically feel. And we thought, I'm going to go crazy if I feel this all the time. I need to harden that up. I need to toughen that up. I don't read any way that Jesus ever did. I wonder what that would be like. I have a feeling if I, if I let my insides feel the way God would want them to, I wouldn't be able to handle it long. But it wouldn't be that I would go crazy. I think I'd just do something about it. And the enemy's convinced me that I'll go crazy instead of that I'd try to make a change. Jesus saw two things in them. He saw that they were weary. Ekluo. Ekluo, ek means out of, luo means to loosen. See, interesting, because from a perspective, from a Middle Eastern perspective, you being held together is being whole. You being destroyed is just being loosened. That's the idea. Being loosened. You're, the idea that something inside of you isn't working the way it should. Something's kind of vacating from where it should be. To be utterly destroyed is to be absolutely loosened. Interesting, because that will be the source of the universe, by the way. The ultimate destruction is God is just going to loosen every, if you will, every atom, every electron from its neutron and the power of that alone should melt everything, as God makes clear in First Peter and Second Peter. So how would I say that today? Say they were falling apart. Can you, you know what it's like. I mean, you know this. If you ride public transportation like I do, and I purposely do, well, I can't afford a car and I don't have a lot. Well, anyways, but I would, I would anyways. There's always, on every Thursday, for instance, where I'm riding quite frequently from the morning rush through the afternoon through the evening there's always somebody that i could clearly identify as falling apart i mean they're 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 clearly just their whole life is just kind of like when you drop a rock in a puddle or in a pond and all the leaves kind of head in opposite directions that kind of doppler effect that's kind of you watch their life and you watch this and of course we've trained ourselves to to kind of slip in our headphones and kind of look away because we know that if especially if it's a girl and I'm going to go and sit and say hey are you okay so they're going to look at me like what are you trying to scam me and I, and I kind of know that that's kind of what may happen so I don't risk it but Jesus looks and when he sees he sees, he sees people falling apart but the way that it's worded, it actually hits me harder because I realize this wasn't like Jesus was just in the marketplace when he saw this. He saw it in the synagogues he visited. He saw it in church. He saw people falling apart. And he saw it in villages and he saw it in cities. See, there was the commonality. Now, granted, the way you fall apart perhaps in a village looks different than you fall apart in a city. The way, I mean, it's, it's pretty much, it's, it's a great deal more obvious here, isn't it? I mean, it's a person who throws himself in front of a train. This Thursday morning as I'm on my train, getting ready to head down, 
we take a stop somewhere uh, en route. And there is a, a girl, and she is clearly trying to push her boyfriend onto the tracks. And he's like, hey, you're scaring me. You're scaring me. And he says, you know, he just sees... He sees people falling apart, and, and, and inside he feels something in a way that he can't just let it happen. What if that were us? What if that were just me? But it goes beyond that. Jesus saw the multitudes. He saw the multitudes with compassion because they were weary, but also, he says, they were scattered. The word for scattered is the word ripto. And ripto is the word that means to fling. There was a gal who was making her way to the train, and I'm sure we all have stories like this, and she was turning, and as she was turning, somebody else was making their way in the opposite direction, and it hit her purse, and it flung everything everywhere. I'm actually sliding my leg to keep things from falling onto the tracks, you know, so that I'm like picking up lipstick and things like that, which, of course, the gal is like, who are you, you psycho? But I'm like trying to, you know, pick this stuff up. And I'm like, here, you know, I'm sorry to see that rough morning. I'm going to be praying for you. She just kind of looked at me like. And she said, people don't say stuff like that anymore. I said, well, I do. She said, well, that's because you're American. I said, no, that's because I'm Christian. She says, I know way too many Christians. They wouldn't do this. I says, but if you met Jesus, he would. Please hear me. Jesus would not allow this to not touch him. And what he saw was a bunch of people flung. And boy, if there's any place in the world that I've seen it, it's here. They're just flung. You know, when you're flung, it's like I, I, I think of what it was like to be in the water and how there are those times where you know you have to go in and dive in after somebody because they are so tossed by the waves at this point, they have no control anymore. And I watch this where their whole life is like they're spinning. And the problem is here we've so learned how to mask it and pretend like we're cool with it that we will die. Remember, you know, it was one of those I probably better, I don't say which band, one of those Christian, those Christian it's not, not remotely, one of those secular English bands that said that quiet desperation is the English way. We'd rather die in our desperation, but play our cello on the way down as the Titanic sinks, than get on a floatable piece of wood and wait. And Jesus here Here's the, you know, please hear me. Jesus is already, he is already teaching. He is already preaching and he's already healing and it still hurts. How many of us, if we did any one of those three things, we'd be like, it's enough. Come on, I'm doing something. But it isn't enough for him because when he sees them falling apart, and when he sees them being flung, tossed about now by the life and the pace of this city and such, when he sees all of that, he just can't turn away. And it says, as this was the case, 
He saw it as shepherdless sheep. You're probably aware of the fact that pastor means shepherd. It's not a fancy word. And a pastor is not popular when wolves are around because wolves make lots of noise. Pastors, by the way, have to come hard on strong-shouldered sheep because sheep butt for position. They obviously have no offensive weapon, but they're hard heads. So if you ever watch sheep, it's a shepherd that keeps them from butting heads. They butt heads because somewhere in that, if they feel like there isn't a shepherd, they'll try to become it. And they push and they run and they hurt. They, what they traditionally do is they try to lock heads. They realize it doesn't work. So they basically T-bone the next lamb. In other words, they hit it right in the side so it knocks over. They basically go lamp tip. And that's their way of kind of alphaing over the next one. I remember when I first came here and asking the Lord, open my eyes, show me, give me insight. And the Lord reminded me of this this particular week. Let me ask you something. When you were born into the world, every one of you were. I mean, I don't think any of you were hatched or anything like that. Who was the first, who was supposed to be the first worldly and I'll meet worldly in that bad way, but of this earth, shepherd in your life. Who is it supposed to be? From an earthly perspective. Your dad. Your dad is supposed to be the first shepherd you watch. Who leads, guides, guards, loves and feeds. And I remember the Lord brought this to my remembrance as I'm praying about something. God, am I, am I being the shepherd that you call me to be? And Jesus sees this, and I remember the first appraisal that was given is, this is a nation without a father. There are not men stepping up here, being good husbands and good fathers. So what happens when you take a kid and you, and you pull the dad out? Now look at if you're in a situation where it isn't your choice, if you're a child here and your dad was like that, it's not your fault. But if you're a man here, you have a choice what man you want to be. You have a choice to make the the child or children that will be yours not their fault by having a better answer. But please hear me in this. What happens when you take a kid and you pull his father from him? A boy decides he has to be a man way too soon. And he doesn't know what to do. He's got power tools like hormones that he doesn't know what in the world to do with. And then you take that kid sooner or later after he's kind of figured out how to survive and then you try to put a dad in his life. They are, they are offended. They're resistant. I understand that. Interesting, in the book of Malachi, where God speaks about where God speaks about bringing revival, restoring. He doesn't say the churches would be full. He doesn't say that the songs would be louder and Christian bands or whatever would be popular. He doesn't say that famous personalities would now be proclaiming it. 
He says, I'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and children to their fathers. He says, you know what real revival should look like? It should look like real healthy families. What it should look like first. God says, you want to see the temperature of the church? Look at the fathers. See what you see. Now, right now, we've got a bunch of married, young married couples, which is awesome. This is the best time. So, men, I'd like to challenge you with me to become a godly father before, in your cases, before you become one. To make that choice now, not just in the strength of your own personal conviction. Single men, make those choices now. So that when a godly woman is brought into your life, they know you have every intent and you've already, you're not just willing, but you're ready to be a godly shepherd in your home. Jesus looks and this is what he sees. And he sees nobody to love them. Nobody to guard them. Nobody to lead them. Nobody to protect them. What he sees is a bunch of people. And you know what happens when there aren't proper shepherds? People get... They fall apart. And they get flung. They're just bobbed about. And many of you that know that, you know that because you've, you've been the victim of that. You know what it's like to kind of look and, and wish you had an example. But here's the problem. Christianity is all about relationship. We can teach doctrine. I can throw out text after text and you can say, I know how to argue the rapture or I know how to argue this or that. But the vast, vast, vast majority of Christianity is about relationship and relationship has to be modeled. We can read every good marriage book there is, but to be honest, it's examples that help us really learn how to have a good marriage. And this is what he says. What he sees, though, is not depression, not hopelessness. What Jesus sees, beloved, is hope. Because what he sees is somewhere deep beyond all of the rebellious kids that are now playing their shop games. The kids that are trying to get into gangs and saying, yo, bruv. He sees a harvest in there. He sees a harvest in angry kids. He sees a harvest in lazy guys. He sees a harvest in the girl that's going from bed to bed to try to find what it really means to be liked by a man because she has no category other than that for some form of respect among men. And what he sees is somewhere at the bottom of all this, there's a harvest. Jesus saw these shepherdless sheep. He saw them falling apart and he saw them flung, but he sees a harvest. And as he sees a harvest, he looks and he sees nobody's going. And he sees the fruit rotting on the trees. And let's be honest. Would we even go if the Lord showed us the harvest? I mean, really. If the Lord said, hey, look it, 
If you go out today and give people a choice, the harvest involves a choice. Will you accept this gift of Jesus? We're not just saying I'm going to make you aware of it. I'm not just saying that I'm going to lay out some information and teach or even preach. I'm going to lay you down to the point where you have a choice to make. And that choice is whether or not you want to be picked. How many who call themselves Christians in our city would go? How many of us would go? And Jesus looks, and I get this idea that Jesus looks and he's a bunch of guys that he calls disciples in verse 1 of the next chapter and apostles in verse 2. And he looks at his students and he goes, boys, boys, do you see the harvest? And I guarantee you that if we cannot look with eyes of compassion, we can't see the harvest. Because what we'd rather have is them gone than them saved. We'd rather have that girl shut up and stop yelling from across the McDonald's than her accident to, to shut up, praise the Lord, because her life's been transformed. We'd rather have everybody off the bus so we could pick a seat of our choice than for every one of them to kneel down and pray. And I look at this and I realize that until I look with an eye of compassion and willing to have it broken over people that would bother me, I'm not going to see a harvest. I'm going to see a hassle. And I look at this and I realize that Jesus saw it and he's like, boys, do you see it? I guarantee you those guys would be like, "Mm, uh, do I see what? Which means there's hope. It's like, don't you see the harvest? Don't you see how ripe these people are? You know, a ripe person doesn't look like good fruit often, do they? They're the person when you share Jesus, they freak out on you. Because you hit a nerve. And you're like, you know, you could say, and they like fly off and spits flying. They're like baptizing you. And you're like, wow, that was, you know, that made me uncomfortable and it was bad for my self-esteem. I'm not going to risk that again. You know, there's got to be a better way to do this. Silence seems better. And, and Jesus is like, don't you see how close this person is to saying yes? And of course, I'd be like, no. What I see is how close this person is to trying to punch me. How irritated this person seems. How radical they stand and draw battle lines and stand and push on the other side of it against my nose. And they're like, shut up about it. And you're like, look, at, you know, if this weren't true, it wouldn't bother you. And Jesus looks and he's like, look at you guys. The harvest is here. It is here. He's been preaching. The kingdom is within your grasp. And there's something inside of these people that's afraid to do it. But there's something that says, please let that be true. And they get in your face and they say, do you really believe this? And we don't want to go anywhere farther. So we're like, well, uh, uh," instead of saying, yes, absolutely, I believe this. Because somewhere inside of them, they want us to say that. They want us to say yes. But we're romanced by darkness and silence. And things that stand openly against God. And we would rather crawl arm in arm with that thing than we would with somebody else that actually is bold about Jesus because that embarrasses us. Beloved Jesus, what would it be like if he walked through what's called Christianity in London and he were recruiting from that 12 people? 12! If there was genuinely 
a law against Christianity, how many of us in this city would actually have any evidence to convict us? So he said the harvest truly is plentiful. Plentiful, the word, by the way, pulas is the word that means rich. It's deep. This is so good. There's no help. Isaiah and Ezekiel are so clear in this where it says God just wanted someone to step in and stand in the gap. He wanted somebody to fill in the breach. Someone who was willing, that even had a heart to go out there. And he says he didn't find anyone. Do you know what God did with the nation Israel? He didn't damn them. What he did was he laid them off of their mission and called the church to do it. That's what Romans says. He didn't send them to hell. What he said is, you know, right now you need to see somebody else do your job. The problem is, is if you were to watch the church, do you think that, that Israel would be like, oh, yeah, well, clearly what they're doing, we should be doing. I mean, what would it be? A light to the Gentiles? The voice of salvation to a dark world otherwise? I'm not here to beat you guys. I'm just here to tell you I'm kind of still steaming from my own marks from the woodshed this week. I think there's a part of us that really needs to be defibrillated. So here's here's the part as we bring it around in our last portion of this. Jesus said... There is a harvest. Can you see it? Can you see the harvest? Do you know what he's going to do? He's going to send brothers out with each other. One thing we're going to see in Matthew is they're all paired up. There's six pairs. I can't even imagine how amazing it would be to watch my kids walk arm in arm and do something crazy for God. Right now, that would just be, that would be, that's just a dream. But God makes those kind of things come true. James and John, Could you imagine how opposite those guys were? Peter and Andrew, could you imagine how opposite those guys were? And then he stuck an anti-Roman zealot with the tax collector. Look Look at the pairing. Could you imagine that? Or maybe he did that so that James and John couldn't kill each other or Peter and Andrew. He's like, well, we're so different compared to these two. This guy hated everything Roman and this guy worked for the Romans. You tell me. And I look at this, you guys, and I realize, he says, look at The harvest really is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, now what would, what would it be here if we just took it by tradition? The harvest really is plentiful if we're willing to look with an eye of compassion. The labors are few. Therefore, let's start brainstorming. Let's come up with a program. Let's get a kick and band and Let's rent a really awesome stadium. Not that those things are bad. You know what he said? Therefore, pray. Therefore, pray. Can we start with that today? Can we even start with God? I give you permission to break my heart if it's what's in the way. I give you permission to rock my world if that's what's in the way of me actually seeing with the compassion I'm supposed to. Can you imagine? He's like, pray. And of course, the fun part about it is we kind of know what happens here. It says, 
pray the Lord of the harvest would send laborers. And then, of course, what he does then is he sends the guys that were praying. So maybe that's why we're scared to pray, because we kind of know if we pray, he might send us. But let me give you a little bit of a review for a second. And maybe it's not even a review. Maybe it's just instruction on this issue of prayer. Because, of course, there are all kinds of issues. And I know the Lord's been bringing us into this season of prayer. But, but follow me for a moment. I just want to walk us through a bit of what the, well, actually what the Torah says, the first five books of the Bible about prayer, how God introduces it, what God does to develop it. And then, and then really just a couple quick things about it. And, then, and it isn't like I'm going to do this whole lesson on prayer because we've already kind of walked through this text. But I do really would least want to drive us a little bit to this prayer and really, to be honest, take some time and genuinely pray today. And I think one of the things we need to do, isn't it awkward? Let's face it, the way that we kind of do right and ritual here, that's kind of like at the end of it all, we've prayed, we've done an altar call. We're all like, cool. You know, we could have the band do another song or whatever, but that's kind of weird because sometimes they're in children's ministry or whatever. So we all kind of like, okay, it's done over. And we kind of look at each other and like, now what do we do? But what if we prayed then too? What if at the end of it all, we're like, you know what? I know that I might need to leave, but I can't do that right now. I need to get with a couple people and I need to go, God, whatever it is that you really want to burn in me here, burn it. Before we actually just kind of went back over to the tea table. Listen, listen quickly. And again, don't just believe me, but I'm going to walk you through it quickly. Because what Jesus said was that there's a bountiful harvest. Therefore, pray. And then Jesus is going to call the twelve. We'll assume it's for prayer. And then he gives them authority. And then he sends them. Could you imagine if that's what happened when we started to pray? We would be drawn to Jesus and his heart. We would be given the authority that was necessary. And then we would be properly sent. Now, in the, in the Torah, prayer, by the way, isn't even introduced until Genesis 20, by the way. And by, by the way, when one of God's people does a terribly bad compromise, he says, tell, you're probably familiar with the story because he does it a couple of times. Hey, he talks to his wife and says, tell this guy, Abimelech, that you're my, my, my sister and not my wife, because if you're my wife, they'll kill me and then they'll marry you. If I'm your brother, they may marry you anyways. So you're going to wind up married either way, but at least I don't die. Right. And ultimately what happens is God plagues them. And nobody there is, and, and what happens is they're plagued with unfruitfulness. Interesting. It's that compromise, that births, pardon the pun, unfruitfulness. And in that, by the way, Abimelech becomes aware of the fact, and he goes to Abraham and he's like, what, you, what have you done? What have you done here? And ultimately, Abraham prays. That's the first time we see the word in Scripture. And it's, by the way, for what it's worth, not that the first time that, that there's conversation between man and God, but the first time that it's called prayer. And, and it's Genesis 20. And in it, what he prays is simply praise God, forgive him, and heal them. That's what he prays. It's introduced in intercession, by the way. As please forgive them and, and heal them for my stupidity is really what he's asking, if you think about it. And God, forgive and heal these people. Don't let them be the victim of my stupidity and lack of faith. Then the next time, Exodus 32, or in Exodus 32, God is asking, or Moses is asking God to forgive the sins of Israel. Then it comes to Numbers. And in Numbers 11, he prays for their healing. 12, he prays for their healing. 14, twice, 21, he prays for their forgiveness. Deuteronomy 9, he prays for their forgiveness. Forgiveness and healing were the themes in regards to others. God, forgive them and heal them. 
By the way, it was God's people other than the first time. God, forgive them. Please forgive them. Could you imagine praying that God would forgive someone who's done something stupid to you? Sometimes intentionally, sometimes accidentally. But pray, God, forgive them. They have no clue what they're doing. That sounds like compassion. Then when it comes to him personally, in Genesis 32, by the way, it's Jacob who's praying because his brother is coming to kill him, he thinks, and he says, God, deliver me. His prayer for himself, the first prayer, if you will, personally for himself, other than God, please do these things for us, is God, will you deliver me? But then from that point on, everything else is basically the same thing. Genesis, Jacob is wrestling. Call it a prayer if you like. But he does say, I pray. Genesis 32, 29. Tell me your name. Let me know you. Exodus 33 with Moses. I pray that if I found grace in your sight, show me your way that I may know you. Exodus 34, verse 9. If I found grace in your sight, O Lord, let me, O Lord, I pray, will you please go with me? Come with us. Be with us. And I realize that when I look at you, I should be praying for forgiveness. God, would you please reach these people and show them their sin, not because the purpose is for them to feel miserable, but that they would be brought to that place where they could lay it down in me too and heal them. And for me, God, please let me know you. Let that be my... May that be the song above all in my heart. Let me know you. David, as you're aware of, a God who says a man after his own heart over 25 times will use this. He will pray. As a matter of fact, we read in the Psalms, you know, have mercy on me, hear my prayer, 4152, for unto you I will pray, 69, Lord, receive my prayer. 17, when he calls it a prayer of David. 3912, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry. 428, a prayer to the God of my life. The psalmists knew that these were not songs as much as they were prayers. 54.2, hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth. Give ear to my prayer, O God. 55.1, 55, I'm sorry, 55.17, every morning and every afternoon, every morning, every evening, and every noon, I will pray. 61.1, hear my cry and attend to my prayer. You will hear my prayer, 65.2, 69.13, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. And by the time that you see these kind of wrapped up, you know what David says at the end of, the, of this particular section, which is very David heavy in the Psalms. It says in, verse, in chapter 70 or Psalm 70, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. When he says, and this is the end of my first song book. Hope you like it. Hope it reads the tops. Hope we chart. He says, these are a collection of my prayers. That's why David seems almost bipolar as he's running through it, because these are prayers. He's communicating with God, and he's freaking out, and then God's peace floods him, and he's like, oh, you've heard me. And then he's like, oh, God, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And he's like, oh, God, you're so good. And you wonder what happened. Well, what happened is what happens in prayer, isn't it? What happens is we freak out, we go to God, we throw down our burdens, and God says, well, let's do something about it. I realize this is God's heart. It's for a church that prays. As a matter of fact, you know this. Because when Jesus flips out, and Luke, by the way, focusing on prayer, you know what he says. He says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. That's not what I'm seeing. I'm not seeing prayer. That's not what I'm seeing at all. 
Do you know that in Proverbs 15, it says the prayer of the upright is God's delight. In Acts 2.42, when 3,000 people get saved and now the church has to figure out how to have a new believers program, what they says is they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. We'll break bread today. Prayerfully, all four of those things will have happened here today. But we're almost done here. My, one of my favorite texts from it is in Revelation, by the way, chapter 8. If you get the story, there's this beautiful crescendo. And if, you kind of have, if you're a musician, you kind of know how things get added and they speed up and they intensify. And then the timpani comes in. Boom, 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 boom. Right? And then the strings. And then it's the horns and the things that are louder. And then it gets louder. And the drums get bigger. And they get to that crash ride. And it's... Ah, ka, 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 ka. Because all this stuff is happening. And it says that it starts with, you know, this, this kind of who's worthy, who's worthy, 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 holy, 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 holy. And then it's more, and then it's more, and then it's a numerable company of angels and all of this. And there's all of this deafening praise. And then we read that there's this moment where God silences heaven for about a half hour. And it's this louder, and it's louder, and it's all this, God, you're so worthy, 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 and God, you're so holy, holy, holy. And God goes, shh. And what takes place in in Revelation 8? They pour forth the prayers of the saints. And i got to be honest with you, this is kind of an amazing thought to me. And the reason this is an amazing thought to me, because I wonder what it would be like for God to silence heaven... And then to hear what I pray. Could you imagine? There is this holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy. And then it's like, shh. And it's like, ah. Hello, welcome to heaven. May I have your prayer, please? Yes, please. I'd like forgiveness and I'd like a blessed day and bless the food. Amen. Okay, please pull forward in Jesus' name. You know, and it's like, that's my prayer. And you can almost see Jesus going, I silenced heaven for this. Now, when was the last time I was just like, oh, God, can we just be and talk and listen? And that, that I would be different when we're done. Every relationship that you come in, we do marriage counseling. We've done it for over 20 years. You're the first thing usually people talk about. We just don't communicate. That's always, you know. Well, what does it mean? What do you mean you don't communicate? I don't know. I can't communicate how we don't communicate. And it's like, well, imagine if Jesus were sitting in the counseling office and I was the person next to him. And he's like, what's the problem here? We just don't communicate. Well, really, what does your communication look like right now? Well, all he really does is complain and ask for stuff. Wow, that is a no wonder why. And I realize this is not what God intended to be a guy after God's own heart. And I realized David was constantly in prayer. And I wonder sometimes God has to put us in really rough situations because it's the only time we'll really genuinely pray. Paul, as he's about to end, as he starts to write and invest in the one who will carry the torch for him, Timothy, he says in 1 Timothy 2.1, and I love this prayer, as he's telling he's like, I challenge you in this. I want all supplication, prayer, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all men. It's an easy one to remember, and it's what I want to sort of leave you with as we start moving to close this, is that it's spit. Supplication, prayer, intercession, thanksgiving. And where I come from, yo, yo, you spit, and what that means is you have something to say, and it's important, and you've got passion in it. And it's like, God's like, look, I want you spitting. I want you supplement. In other words, you're asking for stuff. There is that in there. Prayer, 
prosyukamai literally means to throw yourself at God's good intentions. And I get why we're supposed to pray without ceasing. Because that's like, God, okay, no, your will be done. And then I go back to my, well, all right, your will be done. This is a constant need in intercession and thanksgiving. He says, this is what I want your prayer to look like. This is what I want your life to look like. I desire all men to lift up holy hands in prayer everywhere. Men, could you imagine men praying? What would happen if men prayed? Not just, God, get them. How do I still look manly and pray? But rather, all right, God, I give you permission to change whatever you want to change in my life. And if that means you have to break this heart, break it. It's supposed to be all yours anyways. And if it only comes in pieces, I guess you're going to have to. So Jesus looks and he says, there's a harvest to be given here. Will you pray? Now we know that this harvest is only possible because this same Jesus is going to go to the cross and pay for all men's sins. Mine too, yours too. We know it. Don't tell me you don't know the gospel. If you've come twice here, you should know the gospel. Jesus died for your sins, just like Scripture promised. was buried, just like Scripture promised, on the third day rose again, and then he was seen by a whole lot of people, and you need to say yes to his gift. Savior at the cross, Lord at the empty tomb. Will you say yes? So I'm doing a little bit of preaching now. Will you say yes? If you've not said yes to the gift of Jesus, will you say yes? If you have said yes to the gift of Jesus, will you pray with me? That God would send harvesters. And you realize when you're praying, you are volunteering for deployment. So don't be playing with me. We're volunteering. And let's not pretend for a moment that when God gives us the ten minus, that we could tuck it away and think somehow we've been a good and faithful servant. I don't want to do that. Now, look, I'm not laying a burden on you. I'm laying an opportunity before you. If you come when God blows the bugle, it's his job to deploy you where he wants, when he wants. And if you still stand in line at that moment, you could rest tonight knowing that you were available. It's being available is the point. The rest is all him. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray, give a chance to say yes to Jesus. Then I'm going to invite you guys to pray for each other. But it would be a simple thing. If you know Jesus here today, Lord, break my heart, make it compassionate. Show me the harvest like you want to. And then we're going to have communion. Wouldn't that be the best way to have communion? The people that you're praying with, and instead of me calling out a group of people to hand it out, what I'm going to do is you get in your groups, and then I personally just want to hand it to you. And instead of to this time where we kind of do that cool like Hebrew singing and all that stuff that we traditionally do at those moments, take it among each other. You know what it is. The body of Christ, it's the representation of what Jesus did to purchase you. That's the body. That's the bread. The cup out of love that we would be driven by love, made whole at his sacrifice at the cross. The cross shows us the body. The cup shows us the resurrection and the new life that's one now under the governance of his love. And if that freaks you out, I won't even apologize. I just want to say, awesome. Some of you love adrenaline. Well, here's a good place for it then.
Will you pray with me? Father, I think about Solomon who would follow in his father's footsteps, but to build the the temple that you would not allow his father to. And then cry out, you know, if we're stupid and we will be, did you perform all the things that you promised would happen when we're stupid? But we turn to you when we pray. Would you hear from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. And you didn't have to respond. You didn't have to answer, Solomon, but you did. And you said, if my people, not if the world, not if the lost, but if my people would humble themselves, who are called by your name, would humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways, seek your face, turn from their wicked ways, that you would hear from heaven and you would forgive and you would heal their land. God, I come to you and tell you our land here needs healing. And I recognize there is nothing the unsaved world can really do to fix it. Because it isn't the problem of the lost. It is the problem of your people who are called by your name, me included. And today in this room, we confess to you that humbling ourselves is a rough thing. But today we ask that you would put within our hearts the desire not to be humbled, but to humble ourselves, not to have to have you do it, but rather that out of love for you, we would do so. And that we would genuinely pray. We would volunteer to be a part of the solution, even as you told these guys who we love are such numbskulls, that we love are so filled with flaw. So we can relate. And in that same way, here in this room, we need you. Lord, I pray that as we seek to humble ourselves and seek you, that you'd put our hearts full of repentance and repent from those wicked ways and turn to seek your face in its stead. Not just for the moment but as a lifestyle. That there wouldn't be things in this world, Lord, that we know you would not smile upon in our lives. And let us get that right before we actually ever come to your table now. But let us not try to avoid your table, but rather, let us rather hunger to get it right. And if there be any in this room who are not sure if they've ever said yes to this gift of Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to say amen. And here's the prayer. God, I am a sinner. You and I both know it. But you so love me. You sent your only begotten son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that he could pay for my sins. That's the whole message of the, of the bread. 
And as he died on that cross, my price was paid. But just like your scripture promised, on the third day he rose again and offers me a new life with him as my Lord and with me in his love. And that's the message of the cup. So, I say yes. Yes to handing my old life over to you and receiving the new life you offer in exchange. Confessing Jesus is my Savior and Lord, I hand myself to you now in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that, I ask you to say, Amen. Now, Lord, open our hearts to the harvest. Open our hearts to the harvest. Open our hearts to the harvest, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Saints, grab each other, would you? Get to prayer and I'll be coming around with the bread and juice in just a moment. Thank you for the privilege of being able to serve you today.